So <clears throat> I used to work to the... I'm an honorary member of the Christian Council Center at this point. I need to be careful with what I say. Um, but a few years ago, I was at the Christian Counseling Center, and I used to work with children and adolescents, um, and then young adults, and then parents. I would often joke and say it was somewhat funny that some parents would bring their kids to me, and they would um, really appreciate the work that was being accomplished by God through me with their children, and then they would start to say to me, they don't need to come to you anymore, I need to start coming to you. So then it would be this awkward situation where I would try to encourage them to still bring their kids and, of course, come and offload when they needed to. Um, but God took me off to school, and um, he's been training me in that space, and it's been a challenging journey. He's been growing and stretching me in ways that I could not imagine. I thought that I would be focused on children and adolescents, um, I thought that would be what my experiences would be about, um, but he has rewritten my story in a lot of ways. Uh, this past year, I had the phenomenal privilege of being afforded the opportunity to work with women who have a history of military sexual trauma at the Hampton VA. And um, I remember applying to work at the Hampton VA, and I was informed that there was the opportunity to work with women who had a history of military sexual trauma, and I was thinking to myself, I don't want to work with women who have a history of military sexual trauma. Because I was afraid of the impact it would have on me emotionally and psychologically. Um, I just could sense that their stories would be difficult, and I cry very easily, and I did not know how I would navigate that, and that's exactly where God put me. Um, I am overwhelmed by his grace and the way that he grew and developed me in this time period um, with the women that I was afforded the privilege to work with. And from my work at the Christian Counseling Center, from my work with them, um, one of the themes that I thought was so pertinent to each of their stories was this issue of forgiveness. Um, and so I'm not excited about what I'm going to talk about today because it's hard stuff. And when you talk about this, you have to be honest with yourself. Um, but I think it's extremely important. Um, and I'm just going to share with you what God has been laying on my heart, what he's been teaching me at a personal level, um, and intermix with it my experiences with the women that I've worked with. So I want to start off with one of my clients. Uh, she was in her 60s. Um, I was told by my supervisor at the time, this will be a good challenge for you. And um, it was my probably first week of receiving clients. I had been there for probably two weeks, being oriented to their program. And I could hear from the way that it was articulated to me that this was not going to be an easy road, and it wasn't. I sat down with her for the first time, and she immediately started to tell me her story, and she said it in a way that was almost like, let's see what you do with this. Um, and she was the type of person that there was so much hurt in her history, you knew that she tried to navigate therapy by controlling what you addressed in the session, during the session. Um, and at the same time, she would drop bombshells along the way and look at you to see what you do with the bombshells that she would just ignite. And one of the bombshells that she dropped in our first session 
And of course, if you look at me, I don't look like my age, so I'm sure she was just enjoying the, the impact this potentially was having on me, was to inform me that she had murdered her mother. And she explained to me um, a very, how should I describe it without giving you information that would allow you to dig her up on the internet. But she explained to me a very um, convoluted history of desiring the affirmation and validation of her mother, but being exposed to emotional abuse, sexual abuse, not having the support of her mother, um, coping with it by dissociating, uh, and reporting that at the time I was working with her, she coped with life by dissociating. She didn't really deal with anything. She would just check out emotionally. If you started yelling or screaming at her, she would check out emotionally. And a couple hours later, I realized she was home and did not know how she got home. And that was reportedly what happened on the day that she murdered her mom. She went, she confronted her mom about something. She was 40-something at the time. Uh, her mom did not respond the way that she had hoped. She lashed out, and then she murdered her mom and then went to the police station and turned herself in. Um, so there was just all this hurt and this pain, and I'm sitting with it, and I'm at a site where it's not the Christian Council Center, so we don't just open up our Bibles and talk about Jesus. And you don't know what to say, and I've learned you, it's best to just pray as opposed to start pontificating. And as I'm sitting there, she then starts to talk about the love of God, the grace of God, which of course threw me for another loop, because I started to realize that through that situation, she was exposed to the church, she met believers, she gave her life to Christ, but she admitted that she could not forgive herself for what she did to her mom, because her mom did not have a relationship with Jesus Christ when she died. And we did not touch on God or her religion um, until months later. But it was fascinating to see how she knew God in the sense of having a relationship that she had initiated by accepting Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior. But she didn't walk in that intimacy that allowed her to walk in a freedom of His grace and engage that forgiveness that he extends to us, which transforms us. And it kind of left me with a lot to ponder and think about and reflect on, because I see that with so many of us as believers. Many of us know about God, we know about his forgiveness, but we don't really walk in it. We haven't forgiven ourselves for so many different things that have happened in our histories, whether it be before Christ or after our initiation of a relationship with him through um, surrendering our lives to, to him. And then I had another client. Um, again, she was involved in the church, but she was extremely anxious, very hypervigilant. She had been raped on four separate occasions while serving in the military. At least three of those were individuals she knew, um, not boyfriends, just acquaintances. And she lived her, her life in perpetual fear and anger and anguish, and she wrestled with forgiveness, and she wrestled with um, self-forgiveness. A lot of the women who are sexually assaulted blame themselves for the assault um, because they feel that there was something they could have done differently. And so you sit with all of this as, as a therapist, and, and you start to reflect on what does this, what does this mean, and how do I work with this person, and how do I, how do I expose them to Christ when I'm not allowed to even say his name? So... 
I was reflecting on those two cases as I started to prepare for what I would share with you this morning. And I was reflecting on each of their journeys with forgiveness and um, their struggles with self, their struggles with others, um, their struggles to forgive their offenders, um, and even their struggles with God, although they would not vocalize it um, and, and acknowledge in some cases that they did struggle with God. And one of the things that stood out to me as I would listen to these stories, I would reflect on my own journey with forgiveness, um, is that fear just seemed to be a consistent theme. Um, And one of the things that a lot of women will admit when they wrestle with um, sexual assault is the fear of being re-injured by this individual or by other individuals. Um, The fear of having something like this happen against them and the fear of letting this person off the hook. This notion that if I don't, if I actually engage forgiveness, this person will have walked away not really being dealt with for what they did to me. So I'm sitting with this, I'm processing this, I'm working with these individuals, I'm thinking about all of these things, and then I start to look at my own self and my own journey with forgiveness, and my own struggles with forgiveness. And there were two things that stood out to me that we had learned and that we had been taught. And it was the fact that there are two forms of forgiveness. There's emotional forgiveness and there is the decisional forgiveness. Um, Many of us will choose in the process of being offended by someone, I'm going to forgive this person. But we would admit, emotionally, we don't feel like we should forgive this person, or we find it difficult to forgive this person, or we don't feel the feelings of forgiveness. Um, and that becomes a struggle for some of us, if we're honest, because we know that we want to walk in forgiveness with this person, but at the same time, we're struggling to feel warmth towards them, to re-engage them in a relationship, to um, allow them to be close again, or, or even to determine whether or not we should let them be close again. Um, so I'm going to kind of step away from talking about people and just make this more personal. I remember one specific incident with one person that was a best friend at the time. And I remember um, some things that they had done and the way that they were just very callous and took no ownership for their actions. And I remember feeling just anger building over the course of this season with this person. And being hopeful in one sense and trying to do the biblical thing, sit them down, have a conversation with it, with them about it, having them laugh in my face in response and only feeling more rage, more frustration, more anger. And I remember one day I was crossing paths with them. I was not excited about seeing them. And I remember feeling within my chest this discomfort. And I had an honest moment at the time and I realized if you don't do something about this, this is going to kill you. And it may not happen today, but the reality is, over time, your dislike for this person is going to evolve into heart problems. Um, Whether we admit it or not, doctors who are cardiologists will tell you if you have issues of unforgiveness and um, conflict with others and you have heart disease, your likelihood of recovering is frustrated by the fact that you are wrestling with forgiveness. Um, versus someone who doesn't have those issues and they have heart disease. So I went back to my apartment at the time and I got very honest with God and I said, God, you know, this, this is ridiculous and this isn't fair 
and you said in your word that uh, you've experienced everything we've experienced. So give me one example in your Bible, in the word, where you've gone through what I've gone through, where you have had to deal with betrayal and disrespect. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm about to build this amazing case, and I'm just like, yeah, give it. I want to hear this. This is going to be good. And as I'm formulating all these thoughts in my head, I start to hear very, I, mean, I don't hear voices, but I start to get this recollection of the story of Jesus and Judas. And I go, uh-oh, um, okay, I got it, all right, you can stop, I don't, I don't want to hear it. I but I felt convicted that I needed to go to the Bible and spend time in God's word and look at this example. Because I did challenge God in my mind as I prayed. I was like, give me an example. Of course, I remember Judas and Jesus, so now I need to sit with it. So I want to invite you to join me um, by going to the book of John, chapter 13. And I want to show you something that stood out to me as I read this passage. So the context of this passage is that Jesus is at the Lord's Supper with his disciples. And then Jesus, during the Lord's Supper, verse 4 says he got up from the supper, he laid aside his garments, he then took up a towel and a basin, he wrapped the towel around himself, he poured water into the basin, and he began to wash his disciples' feet. And he washed each of their feet and he wiped each of their feet with the towel. Of course, as many of you will recall, if you continue to read through the text, it describes Peter's reaction. You know, Peter's our very vocal disciple who thinks he has it figured out, who articulates, hey, hey, no, you don't need to do that to me. You're the teacher, I'm the servant, you won't wash my feet. Jesus was like, fine, you have no part in me. Of course, then Peter retracts, asks that Jesus cleanse the entire, his whole essence, like, wash me totally, and Jesus is like, if you bathe, I don't need to do that. You're clean. And Jesus washes his feet. In this moment, as, as, as Peter's, you know, riding on this wave, he articulates, hey, I'll die for you. And Jesus is like, no, tonight you're going to betray, you're going to deny me three times. And after Jesus is done washing the disciples' feet, he puts back on his garment, he sits back down, and he starts to articulate, not all of you are clean. Verse 10 through 11, specifically. And then it says, for he knew that one of them was about to betray him. Well, when I read that, when I wrestled with my own journey and I asked Jesus to give me an example, which, of course, he gave me a very challenging example, I was struck by that. Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him before he got betrayed, and he washed his feet. If it was up to me, I'll be quite frank with you, I would have said, hey, Judas, do what you're going to do. So he would go out and, you know, begin to put together his betrayal act and then wash the rest of the disciples' feet. But Jesus, knowing that Judas was going to betray him, washed Judas's feet. Challenging. In my humble opinion, I'm not a theologian, I consider that an act of forgiveness, even before the offense took place. 
if you continue and you go to verse 21, Jesus continues to discuss with his disciples. And it says in verse 21, when um, Jesus had said this, he became troubled in his spirit and testified and said, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began to look at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. So this was when I was hit again. I'll repeat my first point. If I were Jesus, I would not have washed Judas's feet. If I knew in advance he was going to betray me, I would have dismissed him, let him go do his deed, and then washed the rest of the disciples' feet. Jesus didn't do that. Then this next point. And this hit me really hard. Jesus washed Judas's feet in such a way that it wasn't even detectable that Jesus could possibly be hurt, harmed, or offended by Judas. I mean, at this point, Jesus had made mention that there was someone about to betray him at least two or three times before this statement. And the Word of God says that the disciples began to look at one another and they were trying to figure out who it was. There was no indication by the way that Jesus washed Judas' feet, it was Judas. That convicted me deeply. Because I'm going to be honest with you, if I had had the washing of the feet and Judas was present, everybody would have figured out it's probably Judas. <laughs> They'd have been like, you notice she barely touched his feet? She even looked like she kind of spit when she was doing it. Like, what is... But the way in which Jesus engaged Judas right before his act of betrayal, it was difficult for people to identify who the betrayer was. Then Jesus gives them a sign. I mean, if you read on in the text, it goes on to say that Jesus said, okay, you know, the disciple who Jesus loved was laying against Jesus' bosom and asked Jesus, who is it? And he said, the one who I give this morsel to. Jesus does all of that. And the word of God goes on to say, the disciples thought that Judas was going off to do some good deed, to either prepare for the Passover feast or to give money away to the poor. Again, the way that Jesus related with Judas was so loving, so warm, they didn't compute. Although Jesus very plainly said, the one who I give this morsel to will betray me. Convicting. And then if you look at the end of the passage, verse 34 through 35, there's this powerful verse. Jesus said, a new commandment, and this is after Judas had left the room. Jesus said to the disciples that remain, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. What, what struck me about this was then I started to reflect back and I recalled how earlier in John there's this discussion of, um, or in one of the other Gospels, there's a discussion of what are the two greatest commandments and love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then there's this, this new commandment. Don't love them as I love myself, but love them as he has loved me. 
like that, you wash their feet where people can't even detect this person's about to betray you or has betrayed you or has mistreated you or has harmed you or has offended you? Wow. And then if you work your way through John, there is this discourse where Jesus is talking to his disciples. In John 15, he talks about abiding in Christ and abiding in Christ's love. And then... If you keep moving through, he talks about the Holy Spirit in chapter 16. And then in chapter 17, he prays. And he's praying for his disciples. And the one thing that he prayed for for us, those who would believe because of the work of his disciples, was that we would be one. United. And if you think about it, acts of betrayal, acts of, of people offending, creates dissension and discord. And the one thing he prayed for for us wasn't that we would be successful, have money, be famous, but that we would be one. Well, as I sit with this now, and as I sat with it then, it occurred to me that forgiveness was a huge part of sustaining that oneness and building that oneness and fostering that oneness and love. Love was a huge part of forgiving. And if he's called us to love others as he has loved us, that means if we're going to love others that way, we have to depend on him. We have to have an intimacy with him. We have to ask him to love others through us. The truth is, I can't love others well. In and of myself, I can't. And then you go to chapter 18, And you see Peter. Peter's denying Jesus, just as Jesus said. Verse 17, he's approached by the slave girl. And she says to him, you are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? And of course he says, I'm not. A few moments later, he's sitting warming himself by the fire with some slaves and officers. They ask him the same thing. He once again said, I am not. Verse 26 through 27, a slave of the high priest saw him. This slave was a relative of the person whose heir Peter had cut off and said, are you not one of those who was in the garden with him? I am not. If you go to Matthew 26, 74, at that point, Peter starts cursing and swearing. He's so, you know, like, really? Like, and then this rooster crows. And then he's reminded. And I want you to hold on to this point because I'm going to come back to it later on. And verse 75 of Matthew 26 talks about how Peter just ran out, just weeping, overwhelmed by this realization that he had just denied Jesus three times. Although he had vowed he would go to the cross, you know, he would die with Jesus. So as I kind of sat with all of this, I really started to realize, who am I? Who am I to withhold forgiveness? Look at the way that Jesus forgave before someone offended him. If you keep going through the book of John, he's crucified for us. That's an act of forgiveness for our sins, even before we even confessed or asked God to give us an opportunity to have an intimate relationship with him. I 
think often when we think of forgiveness, we, we want to look at all these other scriptural examples where Jesus talked about forgiveness. But look at what he lived. And this is what we're called to live as his children, as his followers. I want you to go with me to John 21. So here we are. It's Peter, Jesus. Verse 15. And you see that, you know, they just had breakfast. And Jesus asks Peter this question, and it's often discussed. And he says, do you love me more than these? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And then Jesus says to him, tend my sheep or my lambs. Verse 16, Jesus repeats the question. Peter responds the same way. And Jesus responds, shepherd my sheep. A third time it's asked. At this point, Peter's feeling grieved, but he says, Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. And then Jesus says, tend my sheep. Three times he denied Jesus. Three times Jesus asked him this question. I think one of the most powerful, thought-provoking things that I've heard about this passage, and it's a speculation, but what if at that moment... The third time, when Jesus said, tend my sheep, a rooster crowed. What if? We don't know. Another way to look at it psychologically, there's this argument that when we have an experience, anytime we have anything that is related to it, we can have a reaction. For example, the women that I work with who have a history of sexual trauma, they will inform you that if they smell a certain scent, if they hear a certain sound, if they go into a certain space, they will recall the trauma. So imagine, after denying Jesus three times and hearing the rooster crow and being reminded that Jesus told you you would do this, every time you hear a rooster crow, you're thinking, oh. Every time, I denied him. And then on the morning when Jesus reinstates him, as it's described in this passage, possibly if a rooster crows, every time you hear the rooster crow, you hear your calling, tend my sheep, feed my lambs. Again, this was an act of forgiveness. This was an act of Jesus expressing his love. So this was the process that God took me through as I wrestled with my own issues of forgiveness and I saw how he loved others. And it wasn't easy, but it challenged me and it made me think about a lot of things and it caused me to realize that if I'm saying that I'm his disciple, it's important for me to walk out this and ask him and his Holy Spirit to guide me through this process of forgiving others, of expressing his love to them and his grace to them 
and asking his Holy Spirit to do it through me because I cannot do it on my own. I don't have it within me to do it on my own. So I want to kind of draw this all together because I've been touching on these different points. And I trust that as I'm guided by him, he'll give you wisdom and insight for your own journeys, wherever this applies. As I said earlier, often when people hurt us, there is a sense of fear associated with it because we don't want to be hurt again. But there's also this experience of anger and rage and frustration because we find ourselves feeling, you know, how can they do this to me? I can't believe they did this to me, particularly if it's someone who's intimate, particularly if it's someone that we love, particularly if it's someone that we should have been able to trust. Or let's bring it closer to home, if it's a believer. It's much easier to navigate hurt from a non-believer in some cases than it is a believer. But when a brother or sister in Christ offends us, it can really cut deep, particularly if we know that they're supposed to share in our convictions, our callings. We love the same God. We're supposed to be brothers and sisters in Christ. But if we're honest with ourselves, and if we were to step away from the anger that we're experiencing, or the hurt that we're experiencing, we would admit that there's this sense of fear. There's this fear that if we let this person close again, they're going to repeat this behavior. And yet what's so striking is that we're called to love them. And we're called to abide in God's love. And John in 1 John talks about perfect love driving out fear. So sometimes I've been left to wonder as I look at my own journey and as I listen to those who profess faith in Jesus Christ that I've had the privilege of working with who describe their struggle with forgiveness, if that struggle with forgiveness to forgive is associated with our, our struggle to actually abide in Him. When I look at my own self, when I struggle to forgive a person, if it, is it actually arrogance? rooted in fear. Have I gotten to this place of thinking that I'm better than them? Or have I gotten to this place of thinking that they're just always in this habit of doing these things to people and, you know, poor me, I'm, I'm one of their many victims. And if I where to sit and think about what God has done for me and really humble myself and think about the sacrifices he's made for me and how he's loved me, would that alter the way that I respond to others? I personally don't feel that I sit with it enough when I struggle with forgiveness. I don't think I sit with it enough and realize the way that Jesus has loved me. If he were to appear right now and interact with me, you'd probably think I've never offended a soul because of the way that he interacts with me. So gracious, so loving, so patient, so kind. And yet, I withhold that from people when I'm frustrated and angry and hurt and afraid. So I understood what those women were wrestling with. 
It's hard to sit there and try to convince them to forgive their offender when you know if you're honest with yourself, you're not quick to forgive people. It's easy to commiserate and think of how evil that person was who violated their rights. But the reality is, if they stay there, there isn't freedom. And many of the women that I worked with were entangled in chains of depression, anxiety, rage. One of my professors asked us when we were working with patients, she said to us, she said, this is an important question you should ask your patients as you work with them. Where do you live? And I would do that sometimes with my patients and they'd start, you know, naming places. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Where do you live? The past, the present, or the future? Those who live in the past will tell you that they're constantly rehearsing the hurts and the pains and the things that people have done to them. And they're just digging it up and they're sitting there with it and the stench of it is all over them. And they'll wear that stench and go, see what they did to me? See, could you smell it? But they'll also describe feeling depressed, anxious, isolated. And those who live in the future, they're constantly thinking about what's coming next. What could happen? How can I get hurt? What will this person do to me? What's going to happen to the dog? What's going to happen to the house? What's going to happen to the money? And they're constantly in this place of anxiousness. And then there's this call that's placed on all of our lives to live in the present. And what's crazy about it is you can't do anything about the past if you live in the past. You just relive it. And you can't do anything about the future because nothing's come about for you to change anything, so you can't do anything except for be anxious. But if you live in the present, you have power. You can change things. You can set yourself free. The reality is, is that there are always things around us pulling us to the future or to the past. The smell, the sound, the email, the, the, the news, whatever it is, it's always constantly tugging at us. But if we look at what God, Jesus, Paul speaks to throughout scripture, we'll find that he calls us to be here, to be still, to know. And if we were here, present, we can change things. So one of the first things I would often do with my ladies is ask them, where are you living? And they, many of them would say the past, particularly when it came to their sexual trauma, they'll describe being stuck there and living there and reliving every moment. But as they made an active effort to just sit sometimes and listen and attend to the fact that there's a light on, there's there's music playing, there are birds chirping, the grass is green. That overwhelming sense of fear, that overwhelming sense of depression would begin to quietly lift. Loving others requires that we live here, not in the past, not in the future. To love someone, well, we must live here. If we think of what they could be, we won't love them well here. And if we think of what they have done, we won't love them well here. But if we think of who God is and what he's done for us, 
and how he's called us to love them as he has loved us. We will love them well. With my kids, what I would do often is chain myself up. And they would look at me very strangely and ask me if I had a key and wonder if I was losing my mind. Unfortunately, I can't find the key, so I cannot demonstrate it for you this morning. But I would wrap myself up with these chains, and I'd ask them, I said, can you run well in these chains? And they'd give me this look like, all right, Miss Arna, that's a stupid question. Can you run well in these chains? No, Miss Arna, they can't run well in these chains. Hmm. One of the things that has struck me when I think about how I've wrestled with unforgiveness is that often I isolate myself from the person that has hurt me, thinking I'm isolating them from me, but I'm actually isolating myself from others. And that's what these chains do. And I would ask my kids, I'm like, you know, when that kid offends you on the playground, do you hang out in that play- spot on the playground? No, Miss Arnold, I don't hang out there anymore. Wow, but that person gets to run around all through that area and all around the school, and you don't go where that person hangs out. No, I don't like them. Interesting. So they have freedom and you don't. Think about it. You don't go where they are, so they have freedom and you don't. Forgiveness is setting a prisoner free and then discovering that prisoner was you. Jesus lived a free life. He forgave before they even offended. I'm his follower and I'm often in chains and he died for my freedom. That's pretty messed up. So here are the takeaways. One of my struggles, one of the struggles that I've discussed with my kids when I talk about people hurting us and hurts is that I have this awful uh, habit of picking scars. You know, you ever had a young kid that, for whatever reason, wants to pick the scar, and you're like, ooh, stop, that's gross, that's nasty, don't do that. But emotionally, psychologically, if we look at ourselves, if I've looked at myself, that's what I do. When someone hurts me, it starts to heal, but I still kind of feel like, I can't let you off the hook yet, because you just, you just ticked me right off when you did that. That's right, you just, really, I don't know what's wrong with you. There's something wrong with you. And the odd thing is they're no longer slashing me, stabbing me, but I'm picking my own scar and bleeding. Or if we're like the woman who was approached by the, well, you know, the religious folks caught her in the act of sin and they brought her before Jesus and there was this whole thing and they're ready to stone her. Some of us, if we're honest with ourselves, We've been stoned. We have been that person. People have pelted us, and unfortunately, after the pelting, if we've managed to muster some energy, we don't walk away from the stones, we gather the stones. And we, we carry these stones. And they become our personal accessories. And for some of us, it takes on different forms. Some of us, we pull it out when that person approaches us, and we say, hey, hey, 
for other of us, depending on where we are psychologically, we go, ooh, you don't have to do it. And we start beating ourselves with the stone that they previously threw at us. And we go through life care around these stones. We're weighed down. It affects our ability to move, our ability to function. But we're thinking to ourselves, oh, I'm okay. I remember asking one of my kids about this. You have stones? Yeah. Do you think you're ready to let them go? No. You're willing to carry these stones? Yep. Why? I've gotten used to them. But it impacts our freedom. But, you know, some of us accessorize them. We, we put glitter on them and we tote them around and we show them off. And, oh, hey, hey, let me show you what Deborah hit me with last week. Hold on. Let me just take it out for you. Look at that. And we do it in the name of Jesus. We do it at prayer meetings. We do it for his namesake. Those of us who love to participate in stoning people, um, it's often because we're too busy tending other people's gardens than tending our own. We like to pick their weeds, and our garden is overgrown with bush. There's nothing growing there, but we're worried about what Sarah's doing this week at 2 o'clock over there in the parking lot, talking to the other woman. So the first thing I want you to walk away with is the fact that we have a choice. We can either perpetuate the hurt or we can abide in love. It's very simple. Fear and love cannot coexist. You can either walk out that hurt, live out that hurt, tote the chains, tote the stones, remind people of how awful this person is, or remind yourself of how awful this person is, or you can walk in freedom and you can abide in love. And remember, by our love for one another, they will know that we are his disciples. Look at our nation. We have churches on every corner. And yet there's so much harm and hatred and dissension and chaos. Someone has to start asking the question, why? It doesn't make sense. We should be this powerful, potent place where God's presence is thriving and instead, there's all this madness, and we live in fear. And maybe it's because we've chosen fear over love. Because if we abide in his love, and we begin here, we don't even need to go in Mason's edition. Just start here. Imagine the impact that could have in our homes, in our works, at our jobs, sorry, um, in our communities. And then spread right into Mason's edition. And they believe it because they see our love for one another. We're not just toting through and handing out things, and then they go, here they come again. First John 4, 18, 15 through 18 describes how perfect love drives out fear. So if fear is driving the unforgiveness, if it's part of why we won't forgive, it's, it's striking to think that if we just engage the heart of God and we engage his love, and if we think of how deep the Father's love is for us, how vast beyond all measure, it would actually position us to walk 
in forgiveness, to walk in his perfect love, and to experience lives that are freer, more abundant, as he's promised. For those of you who have been hurt by someone, it's really hard to move beyond the hurt. People will admit that. Um, I sat with women who've been sexually assaulted, and they will describe, not only in adulthood but in childhood, just the pain associated with it and how the thoughts come up. And they would describe their struggle with living in the past versus living here, right now, in the present. And one of the things I've encouraged them with, and, and I hope will be an encouragement to some of you, is that we can't change the past. We can't change the meaning at times of what happened. Yes, you were raped. Yes, you were offended. Yes, you did have that best friend who engaged you with a smile on her face but a drawn sword in her heart. But you can redefine the meaning in a sense. Uh, a, a way of describing it is that's a picture. We can't change that picture, but we can change the frame around it. We can reframe it. What does this mean? I remember, I'll give you a specific example. There was a young lady who had been assaulted by multiple men, or in some instances they didn't quite get to the point of assaulting her, but they tried to assault her. And she looked at me and she said to me, you know, I just don't know what it is about me. I was a child, I was an adolescent, and just these different men, they came at me, they, it, they almost said the same thing. There must be something about me. It must be something I give off. There must be something, some, something I lack. And of course she was fatherless, which just added more chaos to this whole process of trying to figure out why is this happening to her. And we're sitting there and I don't know what to say. And I'm praying and asking God for wisdom because sometimes God just wants me to shut up and listen. But then it occurred to me, this thought, and I'm sitting with it, and I'm praying, and I'm listening to what she's saying, and, and I said to her, I said, you know what's interesting? Do you realize when a thief breaks into your home, they don't take the plastic forks? They don't take the paper plates? They go for the gold. They go for the silver. They go for anything that has value. Maybe... Maybe this isn't an indication that you don't have value. Maybe this is an indication that they recognize you did have value. And she sat with that and she's looking at me kind of like, what? And I'm like, think about it. They didn't fully understand your value because look at how they treated you. But a thief knows what's valuable. You're a gift. You're not nothing. You're not this thing that people play with and have sex with and treat like trash. You're a gift. So if you think of your own journey where someone has offended you, hurt you, are there ways that you could reframe the experience? Instead of walking away with this notion that you're ugly or you're this or that, are there ways that you can sit and go, no, I'm a gift. And it's not about pretending like it didn't happen. It's about finding new meaning that can inspire you to move forward knowing that God is in that process of healing.
Another thing that I was also struck with as I, I've wrestled with this, this issue of forgiveness is, if you look at John 2 and 25, Jesus is described, and he was, you know, doing all these miracles, and it says, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, many believed in his name, observing the signs which he was doing, but Jesus on his own part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men, because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. And that has struck me, because when I consider the way that he treated both Judas and Peter and others, it's fascinating that he was so warm, and yet he didn't live depending upon them. He didn't say, oh, here I am. I'm just entrusting myself to you. Do as you wish. They didn't define him because he had an intimate relationship with his God and his king, and he entrusted himself to his God, and he constantly described the importance of walking in accordance with his father's will, doing the things that his father had called him to do. And I wonder sometimes when I've been hurt by people, if it's because I've entrusted myself to the person rather than to my God. And I look to that person for something that I should have been looking to my God for. And so part of me holding on to the offense is because I think they've let me down. And the truth is, I was looking to them to do something for me that only God could do. I wasn't seeking him. I was seeking them. So I I share that thought with you again. If you find yourself wrestling with offense, if you find yourself struggling with this notion of, hey, this person hurt me really deeply, are you or have you entrusted yourself to them instead of to your God? So how do you move forward? Often um, there's this phrase that we hear in our culture, you forgive and you forget. And the truth is, and anybody who's been exposed to any form of trauma, you don't forget certain things that have happened to you. Sometimes it's, it's near impossible to forget because of the level of harm. But we do, those of us who are believers, we are called to have a relationship with a God who is about reconciliation and restoration. And for each of us, for each of us, this will look different. God has to guide that process. It is, it is not a one-size-fit-all process. Forgiveness is a process. For some of us, depending on the act of offense, it could be a pebble that was thrown at us and we can recover and go, okay, it was a pebble, I forgive you, that's good. But for others of us, it was like a wrecking ball launched at us. I think a part of engaging reconciliation with another human being requires that we have engaged reconciliation with our God. And in, in, in that means seeking him every day. And then to be reconciled with a person is asking God for wisdom on how to relate with this person. What are the boundaries that should be in place? Maybe my boundaries weren't what they should have been, and that's why this situation unfolded the way it did. And it doesn't mean that I cut them off for life. It just means that I have better boundaries. 
Then there are others that we will encounter who have hurt us, who have offended us. They have characterological issues. They are not going to just readily change. They may not even apologize. And if we wait for that apology, we will go to our grave without ever hearing that apology. But it doesn't mean that we cannot walk in forgiveness. It doesn't mean that we cannot begin that process of forgiveness as Jesus did. Look at the example again. Washing Judas' feet before the act of betrayal. Uh, I'll repeat it again. You may have to change your boundaries. You may have to inform that individual that you can no longer do certain things or hang out or... But you still can walk in a freedom when you interact with this person. But I want to come back to that, that challenge that Jesus gave after he washed the disciples' feet, after Judas exited. He gave them a new command. He said, love one another as I have loved you. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I believe that if we're committed to living for the glory of God, he has this powerful way of tenderizing our hearts and our minds and bringing God-honoring perspective when we're wrestling with the hurts and the pains and the disappointments that we have encountered. So I'd like to close by encouraging you, as you consider forgiveness, as you consider the healing power of forgiveness, as you consider the importance of love in this whole process, remember that the, the one thing we are called to do is live our lives for the honor and the glory of God, which requires being surrendered to Him. And living for His glory means loving others as He has loved us which means allowing his Holy Spirit to love others through us. But if we are going to be united, if we are going to be powerful as a body of Christ, if this nation is going to be transformed, we must begin by being united. And that requires that we let go of old offenses. That requires that we forgive others that have hurt us. That requires that we humble ourselves and let God have his way. It's been said, he who is devoid of the power to forgive is devoid of the power to love. We can't say that we are his disciples if we don't love others. So I want to encourage you this morning, as you reflect on your own journey with forgiveness, as you reflect on things that have happened to you, as you reflect on things that you've done to other people, Begin this process by reflecting on how he has loved you and then invite him to love others through you and watch him do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that you can ask or think in bringing unity, peace, freedom, and transformation.